Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The New Testament teaches that if you have trusted Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life, you have automatically received the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me repeat that. If you've got the issue of heaven settled, that is, you've trusted Christ and you know for sure that you have eternal life because the Bible says if you trust Christ, that's a gift. That's a settled issue. But there's another issue that comes up. If you've done that, then you automatically, at the moment you did that, received the Holy Spirit, and that means you have received the power of the Holy Spirit. One more time. If you have trusted Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life, you, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that boggle your mind? It should. It does mine. So I, I think that provokes a lot of questions. For example, uh, where does the Bible say that? Does the Bible say it that clearly? Uh, another question I have is, why does God give us the power of the Holy Spirit? Now, that's a really important question. Uh, why do we have this power? What's the purpose? And then the third question I would ask is, <laughs> if I already have it, how do I put it into effect? <laughs> what do I have to do to experience the power of the Holy Spirit? Now, actually, I want to concentrate on that last question. I've been doing a series of, on the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is one in a series. I have two more messages after this, and this one is one of the most important in the whole series, and I want to focus on what you have to do to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. But there are some preliminary questions that have to be dealt with first, like... Where does the Bible say that? And I want you to see that the Bible clearly says you have this. I want you to see it in the scripture. I don't want you to take my word for this. I want you to see God says it. And the other thing is, I think it's important that we address uh, why the Lord gives us this power. And then I'm going to spend the bulk of the time on uh, what you have to do. You ready? Yeah. All right. Uh, I usually pick a passage and stick with it. Uh, when I go through a book. Today, we're going to hopscotch. Matter of fact, we're going to jog through some passages in the New Testament. So open your Bible to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to read but one verse. Luke 24, verse 49. Jesus, at this point, has been crucified resurrected, and but not yet ascended to heaven. In that interval, he appeared ten different times, and on this occasion, he says this, Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now, Notice very carefully, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and they're in Jerusalem. And he says, I want you to tarry there. I don't want you to go back to Galilee. I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you receive this promise from the Father that you will, whereby you will be endued with power. Now, admittedly, at this point, he's just talking to the disciples. I'll get to us in a minute. But this passage says, stay in Jerusalem, tarry until you receive power. Now, there are several things I need to comment on. One is that it says tarry. Just wait. 
that's the idea. But some have uh, landed on this and have taught that you, sh you need to go through a period of tearing, waiting on the Lord before this can, you can experience this. Well, let me just say that um, that's not at all why the Lord said wait or tarry. He is telling them to wait because he wanted them to wait until the feast of Pentecost. There was the Passover, and 50 days later, Penta, uh, there was another feast called Pentecost, and that feast fulfilled was fulfilled in the coming of the Spirit. So the only reason he told them to tarry was so that this would coincide perfectly with the Feast of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is recorded in Acts 2. The other thing I want to point out is that the word, uh, you will be endued. You heard, have you used that word lately? I don't think that's a word we commonly use. Uh, I am reading from the new King James Version, uh, which is my favorite translation, and uh, I'll spare you going into that this morning, but um, uh, it uses the same word that the King James uses, and that was, I guess, a familiar word in 1611 when all this started. Um, the, word, the Greek word translated in dude simply means to put on or to clothe, uh, just like you would put on a jacket, a coat, uh, that's the meaning of the word. So he says, you're going to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, I looked at uh, a number of uh, modern, up-to-date translations, and they all translated it with clothed. And if you've got one of those sitting in your lap, you'll see that it says clothed. All right, here's the point. Jesus said to the disciples, don't leave town. Uh, stay in Jerusalem, and you're going to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. Now, he told that to the disciples, anticipating the day of Pentecost. Now, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And look at verse 27. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So if you've been <clears throat> baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Did you see that? The Greek word translated put on in Galatians 3.27 is the same Greek word that's translated in dude in Luke chapter 24. So the point is this, and it's a very important point. <clears throat> in Luke 24, Jesus is saying to the disciples, you will be clothed with the power uh, of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians, Paul says now that that has passed, if you've been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. Now, in this series on the Holy Spirit, I've had a whole message in, on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and pointed out that in the book of Acts, it happened four different occasions over a span of 30 years. That's not the norm. It's not the norm in the book of Acts, and it's certainly not the norm in the epistles. In the epistles, if you've trusted Christ, you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized. And that crowd at Corinth were the most carnal people in all of the Scripture. And yet Paul says you've been baptized into the body of Christ. Beyond that, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. According to Ephesians 1.3, the minute you're in Christ, you've got every spiritual blessing God has to offer you, which would include, and I've listed a number of them in this series, it would include the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul is talking about in Galatians 
Furthermore, Colossians 2.10 says you are complete in him. If you've trusted Christ, you're put into Christ, and you are now complete. You have everything you need to make the spiritual journey. So, Paul is saying, you, if you've been baptized into Christ, you have Christ. That means you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. You have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And all of these verses are saying, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. Or how about just Acts 1.8? You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. So, I'm answering the basic questions before we get to the good stuff. All right? Question number one. Where in the Bible does it say we have the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, it starts in Luke 4, 24. Goes to Galatians 3, but if you want a simple verse that says it, and I'm going to give you more later, it's Acts 1.8. You should receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The next preliminary question I want to ask is, why does the Lord give us this power? Now, the reason I want to bring that up is because some people who get into uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit want to talk about the miraculous. And there is no question but that in the Bible, the Holy Spirit did miraculous things. I am not denying that. But that's not the major thrust. As a matter of fact, a number of years ago, I sat down and looked up all the miracles in the Bible, just to uh, lay them out and see what was going on and discovered that there's only three or four periods when they happen. The period during Moses and Joshua's time, and then there's long hundreds of years, Elijah and Elisha work miracles. Another hundreds of years go by, and Jesus and the apostles. That's it. And in the case of the apostles, as I pointed out in this series, uh, even with them, it starts fading and fizzling by the end of their lives and that the miracles were given to confirm the message. That's clearly stated. In Acts 16, Acts chapter 2, we've gone over some of that. Now, here's the problem. Did Moses work miracles? I parted the Red Sea. Cracked the rock and water came out. Did Jesus work miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Wouldn't you like to be able to walk on water instead of swim in it? That's what he did. Or how about the apostles? I mean, Paul sent out a handkerchief, and people got healed when they got the handkerchief. My handkerchief doesn't have that kind of power. But his did. Now, when the Bible talks about the power of the Holy Spirit, is it talking about the miracles? And my answer is, yeah. And... No. Sure, the, the Holy Spirit works miracles in the Scripture. I'm not denying that. But let me, let me make an observation. Can I get technical for a minute? Yeah. Say, don't you usually? Yeah, I do. <laughs> All right. If you, if you observe the, the, the text of Scripture carefully, as I try to do, there are passages of Scripture that are history. And there are passages of Scripture that are instruction. Make sense? Most of the Bible is history. It's recording what happened. Now here's the problem a Bible teacher faces, or a Bible student. Am I to experience the history or the instruction? That's a huge problem for some people. For example, Moses worked miracles, and then he gave what we call the Mosaic Law, starting with the Ten Commandments. Now, am I to go around duplicating Moses' miracles or following his instructions if I were a Jew in ancient Israel? I'd be 
I mean, the whole point is, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate day and night, that thou mayest to do all that I've commanded you. Joshua 1.8. Or take Jesus. Jesus worked miracles. I would love to have the power to do some of those things. Uh, I'd start with healing. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, go visit the hospital. Now, and, and Jesus gave some instructions, like the Great Commission, to go preach the gospel and make disciples and all that kind of stuff. Now, am I to duplicate his history, his events in history, or am I obligated to follow his instructions? Or again, the apostles worked enormous miracles. Uh, the one I mentioned is Paul sending out the handkerchiefs to heal people. Now, am I to teach the experience of the apostles or am I to experience the teaching of the apostles? Write that down. Those who take notes, those who don't, tattoo it in your brain. Because there are people running around trying to duplicate the history. God rarely duplicated the history. Jesus did it repeatedly when he worked the miracle of healing, but there's only one person that walked on water besides him, and that was Peter. He didn't walk around duplicating the supernatural miracles of the Bible. They were given to confirm the message. What he did is give us instruction. So, I repeat, believers are not to teach the experience of the apostles, they too are experience the teaching of the apostles. Got it? Got it. All right. So, why did the Lord give us the power of the Holy Spirit? So that we had the enablement to do what he instructed us to do. That's my point. He didn't give us the power to go around doing spectacular things. He gave us the power to do what he taught us to do. Or to put it simply, uh, he gave us the power to obey his commands. I quoted the verse Acts 1-8, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What does the rest of the verse say? And you shall be witnesses. That's why I gave you the power. Go witness. And I saw, we saw in this series that one of the first things the Holy Spirit does is he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. So when I talk to people about the Lord, I can depend on the Holy Spirit to do the work that he came to do, and I don't have to convince them. He does. Yes. Yes. That makes sense? Yes. So I have power to do what God told me to do. All right, those are the preliminary questions. The question now is, what do I have to do? Would you like for me to tell you in three easy steps what you have to do to experience the power of the Holy Spirit? And all God's people said? Amen. It's kind of weak, but I... <laughs> Would you like to know? Amen. I'm going to give you three verses in the epistles that tell all believers, that is, people who've trusted Jesus Christ for the gift of eternal life, what they must do to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. Number one. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And look at... Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now Paul says that you're a believer, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the Lord comes back to redeem your body. 
He's already redeemed you spiritually. He's going to come back and redeem the body. In the meantime, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So point one, stated clearly in the text, is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Keep reading. Have I taught you nothing? It's context, baby, context. Read the next verse. Verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. How many of you have never committed any of the sins in verse 31? Raise your Don't do that. <laughs> All right, what I want you to notice is that the sins in verse 31, which are obviously what grieve the Holy Spirit, are what we might classify as little ones as compared to big ones. I mean, who hasn't gotten angry, bitter? The difference between wrath and anger in the Greek New Testament is uh, wrath is an explosion of anger, and anger itself is a more settled feeling of anger. So he's just talking about different shades of being angry. Uh, clamor. Wow. Evil speaking. Malice. The idea behind malice is get even with each other. Wow. Now, back up to verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification that you may impart grace to the hearers. So verse 30 is sandwiched between sin and, and sins that socially we might classify as small, like a corrupt word coming out of your mouth. Edify means to build up. Corrupt would be tearing down. Things that are negative, that tear down people. Don't, don't let that come out of your mouth. Don't be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, he says in this very passage earlier. Now, just, just to give you some feel for what's going on here, drop down to chapter 5 and um, look at verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, uh, let it not be once named among you as fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but the rather giving of thanks. For don't you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man or idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ and of God? Now, I want you just to pick out what we would think of as big sins. Look at verse 3, fornication. Uh, verse uh, 5, idolatry. Would you consider those big ones? Yeah. Well, you shouldn't do the big ones. That's chapter 5. And you shouldn't do the little ones. That's chapter 4. Now, God doesn't make that little distinction. I'm doing it to make a point. That all it takes to grieve the Holy Spirit is what we think of as a relatively small sin, like just getting angry. And then holding on to it. Matter of fact, don't let the sun go down on it. So if you're holding on to anger, you don't have the full potential of the power of the Holy Spirit because he is grieved. So he can't be empowering you if he's grieved. And it's the sin that grieves him. It's sins of attitude as well as sins of action. It's the attitude of anger. It's words as well as works that grieve the Spirit of God. So the point is the Holy Spirit is grieved by sin. Big sin, little sin, all sins, deal with it. Got it? Let me illustrate. 
In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is symbolized as a dove. Uh, when was the last time you were at the beach and there were doves flying all around, little pigeons? We would, pigeons, not doves. What does it take to scare those things away? If you drove a car down Venice Boulevard, I'm on the beach, uh, would, it, would it scare all those pigeons off? Yeah. A big thing like a car would scare them off. But you know what? You don't have to drive a car to scare the pigeons away. A peanut will do. I mean, I've done it. You walk up to pigeons and you're trying to feed them and you throw a peanut at them and they think it's a rock and they fly away and they come back very slowly, right? My point is it doesn't take a big sin to grieve the dove of the Holy Spirit. A little sin will do. But the ultimate point is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So let's suppose that one of the sins I've mentioned is in your life then the real point is, in order to have the Holy Spirit working in you to his full potential, then what you have to do, to state it positively, is deal with the sin. Now, how do you do that? Well, very quickly, let me mention several things. First uh, John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's talking to a Christian. If we, John includes himself, confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, uh, so if one of these is in your life, you start by just confessing it and accepting the fact that God has forgiven you and cleansed you. Someone has suggested that the forgiveness is in heaven and the cleansing is on earth. He forgives you and cleanses you. So he does the forgiving and you are cleansed. That's the first thing you need to do. And by the way, the Lord doesn't want you to confess it so you go do it again. Right. He wants you to confess it so you don't do it again. 1 John 1, 9 doesn't make that real clear, but Proverbs 28, 13 does. It says, he who covers his sin will not prosper. You won't have the power of the Holy Spirit to its full potential. But he who confesses and forsakes his sin shall have mercy. It's Proverbs 28, 13. So you need to right in the margin of 1 John 1, 9, Proverbs 28, 13. There's one other thing I would suggest you do, and that is look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you with evil speaking. Now look at verse 32. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Ah, here's what you have to do to deal with sin so that the Lord has the freedom to work in your life as he would like to. It's called the power of the Holy Spirit. You confess it, you forsake it, and you replace it. So instead of being angry, you forgive. Instead of being spiteful, you be kind. And all of that takes being tenderhearted. So if you really want the full potential of the Holy Spirit working in your life, deal with sin, and here's how you do it. You got it? Can you repeat it back to me? Confess it. What's number two? Forsake it. That teacher on the second row is a good student. All right, and good. Keep. And what's the third? Replace it. You got it? All right. So the first thing you have to do is deal with sin. Now, there's a second thing. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. These are plain, obvious, simple statements of how to have the Holy Spirit working in your life. Don't grieve him. It doesn't take much. Now look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and look at verse 19. 
do not quench the Holy Spirit. Wow. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. Now, what is the difference between grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit? And what do you have to do to quench the Spirit? Well, let's answer that question, and it'll put the thing in perspective. Uh, look at verse uh, 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. I'm reading from the New King James. The Old King James says of every appearance of evil, and it should read form of evil, because if you tried to avoid every appearance of evil, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> All right, but look at the text. Verse 18 talks about the will of God. Verse 20 talks about despising prophecy. Now let me explain what's going on. In the early church, they met in homes, and they had an open meeting where uh, men, gifted men in the assembly, would share spiritual truth. And at the time, the gift of prophecy was in operation. And apparently what's going on is some were despising the spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit of prophecy, and they were stifling it as in being exercised in the assembly. Now that explanation is the standard explanation of this passage given by virtually all commentators who grapple with it. So I'm not giving you some weird interpretation. I think that's probably right. They were quenching the Holy Spirit in the assembly by refusing to let people prophesy. Now, in the larger context, that was the will of God, which he just mentioned in verse 18. So perhaps another way to say this is quenching the Spirit is by not allowing the will of God to take place. So, if you're following me, I said I was going to give you three things to do to experience the full potential of the power of the Holy Spirit. Number one was deal with sin, and number two is do the will of God. Do the will of God. Now, what's the will of God? Well, I talked about this uh, last week, as a matter of fact, I think it was, and I said, everything you need to know about the will of God is where? Well, that was really weak. You do remember, right? <laughs> Everything you need to know about the will of God is where? In the Word of God. The Bible is very clear about the will of God. Just look at this passage. Look at verse 18. And everything, give thanks. That's the will of God. Back up to chapter 4. And look at verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You're being set apart to the Lord that you should abstain from sexual immorality. The Bible is very clear about what the will of God is. Don't quench it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. By the way, there's probably no finer advice that I could give you. You really want to develop spiritually? You want to grow spiritually? Here's, here's a biggest, as one of the biggest hints I could give you. Develop gratitude. It's what verse 18 says in chapter 5. Just go around being thankful. The Lord is so pleased with that. Develop an attitude of gratitude. So, the point is that you do the will of God. How are we doing? We got this down? If I tell you how to do this, will you go do it? All right, one more. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And look at verse 16. This I say then, walk 
in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So, you want to experience the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do not grieve him. Do not quench him and walk in him. Now, the question is, what does walking in the Spirit mean? Now, folks, uh, let, me, let, me, let me just talk about this for a minute. This is a tough verse. And it's a tough verse because of a preposition. It says, walk in the Spirit. And this becomes a bit of a problem when trying to explain what the Greeks meant when they used the little word in. And what makes it difficult is that little Greek word translated in can be translated one of several different ways. So I'm going to give you two options. One is that it means walk in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. And frankly, there's a lot in this passage to commend that. For example, later in the passage, in verse 25, it says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Only in that case, another word for walk is used, and it means to walk in line with the Holy Spirit. Ah, Furthermore, if you look at the extended context of verse 16, you will see that he's contrasting the flesh with the spirit. Matter of fact, he does that in verse 16. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the idea is uh, don't walk in the sphere, in the realm of the flesh, which he spells out later in the passage, but walk in the sphere of of the Holy Spirit, which he spells out later in the passage, called the fruit of the Spirit, which is what I'm going to speak on next week. Furthermore, verse 16 starts with, this I say then, meaning this is the conclusion of what I've just said. It's connected to the previous verses. So let's go back and look at verse, uh, well, start at verse 13. For you, brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now there it's spelled out very clearly. Don't, you're free from the Mosaic law. That goes back to chapter 5, verse 1. It's the point of the whole book. You've been, you don't have to obey the Mosaic law. Be thankful. There's 613 of those laws. You don't have to obey the Mosaic law. What you have to do is you obey the law of Christ. Now, you're, don't, don't, don't use that liberty as an opportunity to go feed the flesh. But what should you do in opposite of that? Go serve one another by love. Go love people by serving them. That's what you ought to do. So the point of verse 13 is not the flesh, but the realm or sphere of love. So he amplifies that in verse 14. For the law is fulfilled in one word, this, if you love your neighbor as yourself. Paul expands this in Romans 13, where he explains that love fulfills the law. It does no ill to its neighbor, therefore love fulfills the law. You want to fulfill the Mosaic law? Just go love one another. Then he says, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you consume one another. What's that? The flesh. Clearly. So, verse 16, this I say then, walk in the Spirit. Well, in the context, what's he saying? Walk in love. Walk in the sphere. Walk in the area of love. Just go love one another. And you will fulfill the law. And you'll be walking in the Spirit. Because the Spirit inspired the Word that tells us the will of God. All right, that's one possibility, that the idea is that it is walking in the sphere 
of the Holy Spirit. But I said there's a second possibility to interpreting the little word in. And frankly, this is the most common uh, interpretation given by preachers. The little word in can mean by means of. So that the idea is that you are walking by the means of the Holy Spirit, which is done by depending on the Holy Spirit to give you the means to do whatever it is you're supposed to do. So, I think that that too is a possibility. If not in this passage, certainly in other passages. That we're constantly told that we walk by faith. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, of the Son of God who loved thee and gave himself for me. And in Ephesians chapter 3, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Last passage. Ephesians chapter 3. And look at verse 16. This passage says it real clearly. Ephesians 3.16 That he would grant to you according to the riches of the glory to be strengthened in the inner man through his spirit. Did you see that? Strengthened with might through his spirit that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now he's not talking about receiving Christ. He's talking about living a life of faith. It's after you've trusted Christ. You still live by faith. You receive Christ by faith and you live by faith. That you're being rooted and grounded in, there it is, love. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the breadth, length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what are you filled with? Love. Filled with the Lord, which means you're filled with love. Now, based on Ephesians 3, I think at least depending on the Lord is included in walking in the Spirit. He says through the Spirit. And here now it's clearly by means of. Different preposition, which would include by means of. If you want an illustration, it's this. <coughs> if I say walk, that takes effort, right? Yes. Uh-huh. It all depends on you. Get up and walk. But if I said walk by the Spirit, how do you do that? Well, imagine walking with a crutch so that you are putting forth effort And at the same time, you are depending on the crutches. That is the way this gets done. So put all this together. How do I experience the power of the Holy Spirit? He wants to work in your life. He's jealous of you. You're his. In fact, James 4 says he's envious and jealous of believers who are not depending on him. So what do you do? Deal with sin. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. I mean, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Number two, do the will of God. And the primary, number one thing God wants you to do is love one another. And thirdly, depend upon the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to do just that. Now, I'm running out of time, and i got more to say that'll take me another two hours. You want me to keep going? They laughed instead of voting yes. (laughs) All right, let me just very quickly tell you this. The Bible is constantly talking about calling on the Lord. Uses that phrase over and over again. That's what this is about. It's calling on the Lord. Uh, Paul says, whoever calls on the Lord shall be saved. In that passage, he's talking about saved from the power of sin. It's in Romans chapter 10. 
Peter says, calling on the Father, who without partiality judges according to our works, conduct yourselves at this time in fear. If you call on the Father. Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But my favorite that you've heard me quote over and over and over and over, if you don't know this verse, you haven't been listening to me. Can you imagine what verse I'm going to quote next? Hebrews 4.16. And all who said that get an A for the day. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. The Greek word translated help in Ephesians, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4.16 is the same word that's translated helper in John chapter 16 when Jesus said, I'm going to send you another helper. The original King James translates it comforter. It should be translated helper. So if you want the verse that says the Holy Spirit will help you, it's Hebrews 14.6. 4.16, what did I say? I said 14.6. Got it? Wrong. Got 4.16. Got it. I'm in a hurry. I'm thinking I'm running out of time. Shucks. All right, have you got it? Do I need to repeat it one more time? You want to experience the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Three things. Number one, deal with sin. Number two, do the will of God. That's the walk part. But do it by depending on the Holy Spirit. That's the walk part. Walking with crutches. All right, I'm going to wrap it up by giving you an illustration. You have a car. Is that a powerful instrument? If you have a car, you have power, right? Well, if you have trusted Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You have power. So the question becomes, how do you get that power to work? Well, it's real simple. The way most preachers preach is they just wiggle their finger at you and tell you you've got to obey. You've got to obey. Now you do. I just said, do the will of God. But that's like saying, if they never tell you about the Holy Spirit, that's like saying to get the way the car to work is go push it. And that's what people do. They read the Bible and they go out thinking they're going to do what it says by self-effort. And they fall flat on their kisser. Right? Or there's a whole movement among some Christians that say, you got to feel it. The Holy Spirit works and you got to feel it. Well, that's like getting in your car and saying it'll work and I'll get it going when I feel it. Well, I have some real problems with this whole thing. The Bible just doesn't talk like that. What does it talk about? Call on the Lord. Lord, help. So what do you do? You want to experience the power of the car? Let me tell you what to do. Put the key in the ignition, turn it on, take the park brake off, and put it in drive and push the gas pedal. Got it? In a similar fashion, if you want the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, deal with sin, do the will of God, and depend on the Lord. A week ago, a couple invited me to lunch. And this is a case where uh, the wife had all kinds of very serious questions against the truthfulness of Christianity. And it was my job to convince her Christianity was correct. And I love these kind of conversations. They're meat to eat for me. I just love them. But in this one, 
She was being a little obstinate, <laughs> difficult. And I, this lasted for two hours. And, and in the midst of this, I said, Lord, uh, help. Help. Uh, I need some help here. This, now, I, she didn't jump up and run down the aisle kind of thing. But what happened was this. I started saying things to her I had never said before to anybody. Now, the Bible promised me you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you shall be witnesses. Now, this is but one illustration of depending on the Lord. And I've had this happen hundreds of times over my lifetime. And the Lord just dropped something right out of the air. I've also had it happen that 30 minutes after the conversation was over and I walked off, I thought I should have said that. But there are times when the Lord just really comes through with a verse, usually, or a thought, usually. It's a scriptural thought that really got to the heart and core of her problem. So it's as simple as that. Just trust the Lord. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Now, Lord, help us to put all these things together so that we absorb the word and depend upon the Spirit of God to give us the enablement, the power to do what you tell us to do. In Jesus' name I pray.